As he turned the corner, it hit him. A smell so sweet, orchestral masterpieces could be composed about it. But what could it be? He had to find out. So with his nose leading the way, he wandered towards the paradise. He turned a corner and stopped. What lay before him was the most beautiful sight he could ever have imagined. A new bakery. And to think, he'd never have come across it had he taken the car. Walk. Cycle. Discover. To the Mayor of London and TfL, every journey matters. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast Spoiler Specials. This one is dedicated to the latest film, the second film in fact, from Jordan Peele. It is of course, Us. And joining me to discuss the film are two colleagues of such lethal cunning who've untethered themselves from the office long enough to form a human chain around the recording console. First up we have Empire's Editor-in-Chief, bow your heads for it is Terry White. Hi. <laughs> you all right? We are the smallest human chain in history. I know, it wouldn't take very long to form this human chain. It'd Tiny daisy chain. Oh, no, daisy chain is something else. Isn't no, it? that no. is it? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's daisy. a chain made of daisies, in fact. Uh, also joining us in the spoiler special booth is Empire's John Nugent. How are you, John? Hello, I'm all right. How are you? I am good. This is good. <laughs> good. Welcome to the <laughs> a spoiler. Special! We, can, can we do the whole podcast like that? No! How long would it take before listeners turn off? I'm out now! <laughs> I think, I think they've, yes, they've turned off now! They've gone! Oh god, Wait, should, should we go home? Let's go home! Okay. <clears throat> anyway, before we start rabbiting on about us, nice. you see, nice. see it, did there? It was good. good. Clever, very clever. Let's hear from the mad genius behind the film, Mr. Jordan Peele. Uh, he came into London just the other week, and I went along to have a good old spoilerific chat with him about the movie. He embraced the spoiler special concept wholeheartedly, although there are some things in this movie that he would like to remain open to people's interpretation. And we'll be interpreting ourselves as we get into it after you hear this interview with him. As always, this is a spoiler special. We get into the film... Third Act Revelations, Major Deaths, a whole kitten caboodle twists, turns everything with Jordan Peele pretty much right from the off. And I start with the big question on everybody's lips as per usual. So here we go. Me talking to Jordan Peele. Do please enjoy. Enjoy! <laughs> I can't stop doing it. I can't stop doing it. It must have been really fun for Lupita the Young <laughs> to do. Must be really fun for your wife. I tried last night and she said, no. That is a treat she's got in store. <laughs> yeah. Who's, who's Chris being tonight? <laughs> Martin Brennan. Who the hell is that? Who the hell is that? Can Who you blend the, the two? Hell is yeah, that? you can. <laughs> Come out, you black and tans. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> anyway, here's Jordan Peele. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this very, very special Us spoiler special by the writer and director of Us, Jordan Peele. How are you, sir? How are you? I'm very I'm good. Are you um, at the point... Now, you, you haven't been able to say a thing about this movie for, what, two years? Yeah. Really? I, you know, I mean, I, I think I, in, in a me- meaningful way, I was engaged with this movie for a year. Okay. Um, but the nugget of the... The doppelganger fear has been in my bones since uh, I was young. Okay, when did that start? 
Uh, that's our, so I, I, I credit the, the Twilight Zone mirror image, uh-huh. um, which a woman is in the bus stop and sees herself. Okay. Um, yep. Yep. As maybe sparking this thing for me. But, um, you know, I used to imagine seeing another me uh, across the subway platform. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, I grew up in New yeah. York. You know, it, when whenever something is um, scares you to your core and you don't necessarily know why. Yeah. Um, that that to me is a possible engine yeah. for a horror film. Yeah. That's worthy of exploration down the line uh, at yes. some point. Yes. Um, so we will get into that okay. in due course. But I want to start. I start every spoiler special with the big question. The one that's in everybody's lips. Mm-hmm. What is it with you and rabbits? <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I, I find them scary for some reason. Um, and you know, the, one of the themes of this movie is, is duality, obviously. And, and, uh, you know, rabbits are, are cute and lovable and fluffy. And, and yet if you really get up close and look at their eyes, they've got like, yeah. it's like jaws. It's like, yeah. they've got a doll's eyes. <laughs> They turn over black and look at you. Do you? <laughs> so I think I think they're scary. And and, and you know I, I you know recently I've been sort of observing this effect. Like if you put a if you like put a rabbit brain in a human yeah. body, you would have Michael Myers. Like they do not <laughs> have any sympathy, empathy. They are they will they would they would rip your head off yeah. if they could. Yeah, is my feeling about them. They just not. Um, so they, like, they scare me. The rabbit from Monty Python and Holy Grail is perhaps the most accurate cinematic depiction right. of a rabbit. That's yeah. right. And there's a movie called Night of the Lipids. Oh my God! Yeah. That uh, was and um, oh and you guys have uh, old uh, the the animated oh yeah the were rabbit uh, no, I'm not even talking about the oh, well, I'm talking one. about the that 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 cartoon oh, Watership trauma- Down Watership Down Fuck me. yeah Tra- mean, traumatized a whole generation of, of it really Brits. did it really did that's a, that's a terrifying <laughs> film we can get into that one that so I wonder if this movie will do well here because of that like generational trauma of Watership Down there's some really Creepy ass scenes in that. I think so. I think people will be either running towards the cinema or oh, running away yeah. from it in droves. Who knows? But we, I think, I think yeah. they'll be running towards it. They'll, they'll embrace this. You know, another um, thematic. There's several things going on with the rabbits for me. Yeah. Um, one of the big ones is is Easter. Okay. Um, a, a, you know, a a celebration, a, a holiday of much du- a duality in itself. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the ri- rising of, of, from this grave. And mm-hmm. this movie, as you know, is sort of this dark Easter. It is a, um, a, a return, a, 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 a rising of a Messiah yes. after a metaphorical death <laughs> of sorts. A declaration to the world. Yes. As well. A, a declaration to the yeah. world as well. You um you do something really interesting with the rabbits and that you introduce them and effectively the film's uh, credit sequence, and then you leave them alone for a while. And there's a little bit where Red refers to rabbit uh, eating rabbits at some point. You think maybe it's just a ravings of a lunatic. Later on, you come back to that. And looking back at the opening sequence of the movie, there is so much that is studded in there. There's Jeremiah eleven eleven. Everything is pretty much there if you want to see it in the opening. Five ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about about that and and seeding a movie in that way, then going away from it artfully enough that people have forgotten about it and then bringing it back towards the end? 
You know, I I I, th- I think of I, I'm pretty consistently throughout the movie giving you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure there's li- stuff I've missed. Little pieces. Uh, yes, oh, God, yes. Yeah. No, I'm 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 still catching things. I didn't know that. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you know, uh, Zora's shirt has a rabbit on it. Okay. There uh, is um, there's uh, there's rabbits. I'm sure in the in the set in the set design and in, in, okay. in certain scenes and that kind of thing. Um, and there's also there's also eleven elevens many places throughout the movie. I noticed um, one at the end on the ambulance in the final shot. There's one in there. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the black flag t uh, shirt makes an appearance in this movie that uh, has this sort of like okay. one 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 on it. <laughs> this is like this is when you get a real nerd um, allowed <laughs> to make a movie. Uh, you just uh, you get a lot of the and by the way another connection to the Easter eggs right uh-huh. it's like yeah 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 <laughs> you know, precisely this is, this is a movie yeah. um, but you know that being said I think I think um, the idea of the Easter egg and the the connection that we have to things connections we put on things has another meaning in this in that there is a you know this idea that coincidence. Mm. sort of marks a certain proximity to your other mm. in this movie. Yes, yes. Um, and that there is that, this relationship with science and also this relationship with, with faith and, and the soul that is, uh, you know, I think you know bo- both my movies sort of explores. That is interesting because I was going to ask about the events of the movie. Are they in some way precipitated by Adelaide's arrival in Santa Cruz? Because it feels like everything she feels that the, the, the coincidences are stacking up, and then suddenly it happens. And would it have happened? I mean, this also seems like something that the tethered have been planning for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But were they triggered in a way by Adelaide's arrival? Um, I, I think that it was uh, a, as you say, it's a plan that's been in place for, for a long time, and it's a plan that was in place to um, ultimately coincide in one of this family's trips back to mm-hmm. the area of her initial trauma mm-hmm. and um, and and this this doorway that we, we we've established at the end of the movie that exists to this place that um, we ca- I call the underpass. Um, okay, which is that labyrinth of tunnels. Okay, yeah, um, uh, underneath the. Land. <laughs> I mean, I'm mean, very careful because I, I, I. There, there's some things in this movie that I specifically don't want to answer to. I have a mythology. Let's put it this way. I've, yeah. I've got a mythology for this movie. I, I know what I know a history of it. Okay. And my, you know, I was as a filmmaker, I'm tasked with the choice. Okay. So you, if you know it all, how much do you give them? Yeah, you can, you can give them very little and leave a lot up to the imagination. Mm-hmm. You can give, you can spew everything out there, um, or you can do what I chose, which is to give you enough to <laughs> let you know that I know what's going on, and to leave <laughs> enough question mark that the film is still scary and still activates your imagination, and you can uh, yes. So I continue to try to figure out as long as I keep you hanging. <laughs> and then people like me come along going, well, what did that mean? Right. And when did that happen? What was going on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I got to just, you know, if, if I back off, it's because no, no, it's, totally it's fine. strategically I have, unanswered. I have, like, just showing you here. I have a number of questions we can go to if there's something you run into. So. Right on. Okay, <laughs> let's do good. it. You, yeah, you're um, prepared. Let's go back uh, to Jeremiah 11.11. 11. Mm-hmm. 
what was it about that specific passage, which I, I, I read today, the, the translation I found certainly was, uh, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. So what was it about that passage in particular? Was it Jeremiah that you were drawn to, or was it the iconography in a way of eleven eleven? Those four figures, those four ones. It, it was both. I mean, this you know, as you know, the character Red, which is uh, Peter Nyong'o's uh, scarier side, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> you know, she is essentially uh, leading this event, leading this. Um, this this brutal piece of choreography. Yes. This, this, it's it's a demonstration inspired by um, Hands Across America, which yes. is you know a very real moment in the 1980s uh, United States. And so I, I felt like it sort of referred to her intentions. She mm-hmm. is an important figure mm-hmm. in this story. You know, in you know, in in some ways the most important figure in the world yeah. in this story. Yeah. Um, so, and, and she's, she's had a vision. She's had a connection to what she calls God. And uh, she's been shown a path. I think one of the breakthroughs in the writing process was realizing that this, the dynamic of the tethered was cult, that there, that there is a, that they have a, a complete faith in their Messiah mm-hmm. that, that is red. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and to ultimately sort of imply that them being the dark sides of us, uh, you know, we are in a cult as well. Just a less scary one on the surface. <laughs> is part of the tethered's reaction to red, the fact that she becomes their Messiah, is it the fact that she comes to them from the outside? Great question. I, I think so. Yes, yeah. um, they're special. You know, they they crossed over into the other plane. So, I I think um, when she dances for them, mm-hmm. you know, and they you know if you, you notice the tether don't speak. Yes, you know they don't have language. She has to, uh, Adelaide learns language as she bides her time dancing above. But um, when, you know, the original Adelaide, now Red, mm-hmm. dances at 14, and I think she tells her story in a way, in a, in a language they understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Adelaide above is, you know, she's, she's, she's physically moving. I think below, she's finding her voice. The way the movie develops fascinates me because I went into the film expecting an intimate thriller what it develops into is something much larger almost even apocalyptic it could almost be the the fourth part of john carpenter's apocalypse trilogy (laughs) in a way and i love that about it at what point in the writing process did you realize the scope of this thing was bigger than most people would expect probably about a third of the way through the process of figuring out what this movie was okay you know I'm, i'm i'm always looking for ways to you know, make sure to scare, but also to empower the audience to have fun. And, um, you know, there are thematic, there's a thematic sort of ongoing debate or dynamic between self and, and, and group in this movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is this something that 
our character Adelaide is is experiencing alone mm-hmm. this this the, this um trauma or and then we realize oh no it's her fam her whole family yeah. is experiencing yeah. it then we realize oh it's her family and friends and then we realize more and more and more and um but also i think there is a uh, you know the shift in genre from home invasion to zombie invasion i mm-hmm. think is like is kind of a satisfying yeah. in in that you know let's be honest the the zombie the, the wide scale version is more fun than the home <laughs> invasion so i think there's a little bit of a a relief that we're all in this together in a weird way and that this is going to um uh, become a more heightened story, mm. and you, you talked there about that the, the self versus the group uh, idea, and it it really uh, is brought to light in that first scene where they're tormented by the the tethered, because you have the focus first of all on Adelaide, mm-hmm. but you also have the sounds of of Gabe almost you know trying to crawl away over his life, and you have you know. Uh, Sora and Jason running for theirs as well mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by that sequence and how you had a handle on it both as a writer and a director keeping the tension cranked and making sure that you know you, we didn't lose focus of Adelaide as well mm. you know this was you know one of the many def- many feats in this film that I was very lucky to have um, my uh, my editor Nick Monsoor uh, at my side um, who uh you know, you know, it's 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 written, you know, fairly clear in the screenplay, but still um, a very difficult scene to put together. And you're telling four stories simultaneously. And um, yeah. I, and then, of course, when you bring Michael Abel's our composer's mm-hmm. work, he has to kind of uh, weave these motifs together as well. You know, I, I think the. You know the, the 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 way we approached it was just on a beat to beat level. Just try and ma- keep momentum going and make the most fun decision. What did we want to see at any given point? Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the idea, the the big idea that drives the movie of the tethered and the untethered, and how that developed from that early fear of doppelgangers and maybe seeing yourself on the the subway in New York. Uh, to the idea that there is a, 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 a almost a shadow world uh, beneath us that we're all connected somehow to this to this this group of others. Well, one of my um, uh, sort of rules for when I'm making a film is to, to take an absurdity, uh, you know, to whether uh, you know, in in this case, a horror absurdity. There's mm-hmm. another me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, try and ground it as much as possible. Try and have it be real. If that's true, then what? The 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 the, the moment I decided I, I knew I could write, I, I had a a doppelganger film in me mm-hmm. was the moment I realized I had never seen a family of doppelgangers, <laughs> and that that brings a, a sort of exponential level of processing. Yes. Um, and uh, so I said, okay, let's say family of doppelgangers, one, counter, everyone has a counterpart and they're here. Um, what does that mean? And, um, you know, the path that takes you down is, okay, this is – the reason it's scary is because it means that at the same point you met your husband or wife, mm-hmm. the doppelganger met your wife or husband's doppelganger. Yeah. 
Um, this, the same moment you fornicated and, uh, had that, you know, honeymoon sex or whatever. And, and, and your, uh, first daughter was uh, conceived. It, it would have happened simultaneously, you know, yeah. by definition, cause the same, the same sperm and egg met for them to look identical. Yeah. 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 So you follow that. Yeah. So, um, that led me to this idea of there's a tether. You cannot have two existing unless there is a faded connection between the two mm-hmm. um, that I explore in a very poetic way. I think it's important that it, that fate doesn't work scientifically. It works mm. in ways we don't necessarily always understand, but that certain moments um, are connected. And that led me to this idea of you can you can make another body, but you cannot bifurcate a soul. A yes. soul remains yeah. one, mm-hmm. and these characters are connect. These characters share a soul. And you've talked in the past about how this movie, in a way, is you you're you're addressing the idea that the tethered are the disenfranchised, and they're the people that you ignore. Uh, you know, the people that you you step past. Uh, on your way to the shops. That's just one element of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But that comes to me, uh, that is summed up in the film's, I think it's the film's key line, which is, we're Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, that surprised the hell out of me. (laughs) I was like, what's she going to say? What could she possibly (laughs) say? I am the ultimate manifestation of evil. You you got got a pen, Jordan? You want to write that down? Americans (laughs) pretty much covers that, actually. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. The question that, that Gabe asks is, what are you people? Yeah. And her answer is, we're, Amer- we're Americans. <laughs> you know, which I thought, you know, I love when answers, when I, it, it's so satisfying to me in a horror movie when a question is answered, mm-hmm. but it only remains scary if the answer raises new questions to me. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, you, you walk into this movie thinking, okay, what is this a supernatural thing? And there's part of it that is supernatural, yeah. this idea of the soul and the, the magic side of it. Um, but I wanted to have a moment where she, she declares, you know, pretty early on without saying these words, like, look, we're from here. Yeah. We're human beings that are from this soil. Yeah. Um, uh, which of course you you know you go on to find out oh yes they are they're, they're just <laughs> underneath it yeah and uh, and then and 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 you know obviously this this the imagery in this movie is um, based in on on my fear of the American society whereas I I think I think us can apply to anybody the mm. you know human beings in general yeah your family. Um, your country, and so for me, it was my country, <laughs> and, and and the duality of our our society. Yeah. At what point did you realize you were going to write that that line? Yeah, um, it was it was in there. You know, I always thought like, oh, this is probably they're going to want to do this for the trailer moment. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'm always bringing that up, but they're you know, some reason they're like, yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> You know, they, I'm sure their research has good reasons. People don't want to see a movie about them. <laughs> Damn Americans. <laughs> who wants to see that? Yeah, who wants to see that? Unbelievable. Totally. There is a supernatural element here, obviously. 
but the the end speech, that amazing shot, that sort of De Palma-esque sort of split diopter shot you have where obviously it's not because Lupita can't clone herself. Mm-hmm. I don't think she can clone herself anyway. You know, but uh, that amazing shot. We still shot. did it with a split diopter. Really? Because we, we use uh, doubles. Okay. You know, so... Um, oh, you didn't fake it then. I thought it was maybe CG or something. It was. Like yeah, it okay. was CG. Okay. But we, we still initially shoot it with a split diopter on amazing. both sides and, and, and I feel that, but... Um, but yes, then we have to uh, VFX oh my it God. together. Excellent. It's a fantastic shot. And uh, Thank you. in that moment, in that speech, she uh, lays out an awful lot of stuff to unpack. One of which is the reference to the idea that the, the, the tethered, there's some sort of connection to to humans. A humans built the, what you call the underpass. Yes. And this, um, since we're maybe getting into territory you don't want to explore. We will yes. say. <laughs> but uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that connection between humans and the tethered and the idea that they've been left there, marooned there by someone or something well uh, you know i can say you know without going into who who exactly those humans were okay um which which i think is something the audience can put together imagine and have have the tools to um create acceptable answers (laughs) um i think the um the the i I wanted to at least uh, inform us in some way that Humanity is behind this abomination. Yes, or that at least this the the queen of the underpasses belief was that this happened. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, see what I did there? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I saw that. I saw so, that. Um, but you know, it, it's all it's it's part of my kind of ongoing thesis that we we are the monsters mm. that we're trying to um, portray in these, in these monster movies, in these horror films. It's, it's us. And, and, and the, the point of horror to me is that, you know, we, we can't go unchecked. We can't, when we don't face our, our fears or, or when we s- suppress our, our guilt, I mm-hmm. think, you know, we, we end up committing atrocities together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and this obviously, this is, uh, you know, this part of this, mo- this, this movie that is addressing the conspiracy theories of mm-hmm. government mind control and... Um, fluoride in the water. Yeah, the fluoride yeah. in the water. Yeah. And, and I thought, wouldn't that be a, a really... If there was a group of humans that was powerful enough to create this labyrinth... Mm. Um, uh, would they not be the same people to try to use the tether to um, to control pu- to puppeteer essentially? To puppeteer. Yeah, uh, it sounds to me, and you said you have a mythology worked out for this movie. It sounds to me that this is something you might want to explore a little bit further. I don't know. Okay, I don't know. I mean, yeah. right right now, I'm not like. I'm not trying to plan it. I, you know, I yeah. leave it open so that if, yeah, you know, when Universal comes to me and says, we'll give you $100 million right now <laughs> to do an us two, I can, I can jump in there. But I've got, I've got a bunch of stories to tell. Is that what it would take? $100 million? It would take $100 million. Let's <laughs> mark it right now. That's what it would be. No, right. you know, honestly, it, it, uh, I, the, the, the beauty of, of this movie in terms of where your imagination can go mm-hmm. is that there are, it's, it's, it's fairly endless. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, I mean the, like what happens to that human chain? What do they do when they, yeah. when they suddenly break hands and 
yeah. exist in yeah. what's left of the world. I mean, it's, that's it's a it's a it's a big uh, it's a big story, and I think there's a lot of different ways to approach um, continuing in this universe that, um, or at the very least, fun in my um, mind yep. and computer. Well, uh, if you need a, if you needed a Kickstarter, I've got ten ten dollars. You from, got ten I've on just, it. I've just gone back from America you yesterday, got so I've got ten a... on it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, uh, fifteen, fifteen. All right, all right. okay, you got, well, you got, well, it. Listen, you got. Now it. we're talking. Now, now we're good. Now we're good. Uh, I'd like to talk about the orchestral rendition of uh, "I Got Five on It." Point? Did you realize that was going to? Uh... You know, the um, in the initial script, it was Tchaikovsky's uh, "Pas de Deux" at the end of uh, the Nutcracker, okay. which would have been the music that um, Adelaide was dancing to, danced to oh, at yeah, fourteen. Yeah, yeah. and um, uh, we put that in the first cut, and it it wasn't uh, working. Oh, really? It, yeah. It, it. I mean, to me as a viewer, it it, it felt sort of. Pr- Old school, a little, a little bit pretentious, even like I'm really like, <laughs> uh, like I, I listen to Tchaikovsky on a regular basis, and I'm like, oh yeah, let's try this piece of music, this class, yeah. this class. So, um, you know, then I, I, I've always thought that I got five on it had this haunting, you know, this is why we use the track in the first place. It had this yeah. haunting lick to it or whatever you call it the sounded kind of like Angela yeah. Baldamente's uh, score for uh, Nightmare yes. on Elm Street um, at the same time as being a total um, uh, just banger you know and so <laughs> I is that the right use of banger that's a very British uh, it's totally fine I don't know I will allow it okay it's- the uh, and so yeah so then the you know the idea came to uh you know, have have Michael sort of go off in his uh, live str- uh, strings and and uh, sort of deconstruct that song. We only got a couple of minutes left, and so I want to get into, I guess, the movie's big twist, which is the uh, reveal that Adelaide is red, and red is Adelaide, and there was a switch mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie. Can you talk about that and where that idea came from, and misdirecting audiences because again it's something that you set up there's a there's a couple of shots early on of young adelaide post abduction where you know, her parents are going to the, the the therapist and there's a seed planted there and then you misdirect people again away from it mm-hmm. and bring it back right at the end mm-hmm. um you know this this movie's about maybe the maybe the monster is you mm-hmm. it's about us kind of looking at ourselves as individuals and as a group. And, um, you know, the, the protagonist in a movie is the, is the surrogate for the audience. Mm. So it, it felt like at the end of the day, I wasn't doing my core theme uh, any justice if I wasn't, <laughs> you know, revealing that we have been the bad guy in this movie. We've been... Um, yeah. we've been following the villain, you know, I say villain lightly because, you know, as you know, I, I think it, there, there are many experiences of, of the film. And I think, I think a lot of people go through a, a question of what is good and evil, who yeah. is, do, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. is that, does that even exist? Um, they're the, both, both characters are lovable and terrifying, based on the lives they've lead they've just sort of inverted yeah, their absolutely. paths 
the real Adelaide is forced into a path that is ultimately she you know commits uh, atrocities, a huge atrocity on a, on a possibly global scale mm-hmm. because of something that happened to her when she was a kid she had no control over. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the real red is someone who has made a choice, upwardly climbed in a way. She's become, you know, uh, a little bit more socially aware. And is that a bad thing, necessarily? It comes from a bad place. Well, she did kidnap a little girl. She did kidnap a little girl, precisely. (laughs) Precisely. Well, if you get past that, Yeah, but you get past that, she's she's, uh, put one foot forward and and made a good life for herself. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, I think one of the, the... one of the questions is, is raised is 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 privilege, yeah. Um, and and uh, you know the 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 neglect that that um, you know sort of presumption of deserved uh, privilege kind of requires. Um, and and when people are on the other side of it, when people are in uh, have received the 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 rough end of the nurture argument mm. um and they rebel or act in violence or commit crimes on, on that side um is that evil or is that circumstance and is this something that you set up in a way from the very beginning the first shot of the film is Adelaide reflected her her dark mm-hmm. reflection mm-hmm. In, in a way is that clearly was that deliberate in your part and can you talk about also the last shot I'm fascinated by when filmmakers know when to end films and on what shot and the final shot is Adelaide slash Red smiling as Jason begins to I think understand what's happened Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that? About well, that the real last shot, of course, is yes. the of course, yes, is the yes. line. But you're yeah. you're kind of interested in that exchange, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so in the, the first question, the uh, yes, that was very uh, an intentional um, reflection. Seeing the girl, um, you know, with her scissors cutting the paper dolls uh, <laughs> while watching, yeah. and everything that she's gonna use in her expression and her journey for the end of the film is kind of in there in that yeah. scene somehow. Um, you can't do that shot. That shot's impossible, right? Cause <laughs> you, you would see the camera. Yeah. So we did a little bit of our movie magic there, okay. but, um, um, and also, uh, nice little fun fact is the, um, you know, the Muzak that's playing over the hands across America commercial mm-hmm. is uh, La Fleur. It's, it's the, the song that we, 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 we kick in in full in our final Hands Across America. But yes, okay, Adelaide and, and Jason yeah. sort of sharing that moment at the end. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm purposefully leaving it a, a, a bit vague as to mm-hmm. what exactly he knows or mm-hmm. how far he's come in figuring out what, if, if, if anything, he's figured out. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, you know, I think the little moment she has is not, you know, the little smile she gives him is a, uh, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's, a, <laughs> I think it's a connection to the, the, the evil smile she once had as a little girl, uh-huh. but also a sort of like understanding that, um, that, you know, her, her family was, um, her family unit was stronger from this experience. Mm. And it is interesting that the family unit in this movie, yeah, there's widespread slaughter. 
You killed Tim Heidecker for God's sake! I mean, yeah. Come on, man. I mean, what's, yeah, it's <laughs> twice. Very easy to do. <laughs> uh, but the family unit here stays intact. You put them through all sorts of peril. Uh, yeah. Was that uh, always on the cards? Did you have any iterations where maybe Gabe didn't quite make it? Or <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of learned my lesson. Uh, you know, after the. Um, the first the initial <laughs> screenings of Get Out way back when, yeah. when Chris went to jail, that, look, you know, the audience doesn't need it to be a squeaky clean happy ending, but mm-hmm. they, um, you know, part of respecting them is um, knowing certain boundaries of where the, you'll lose them. And, <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's a family we, uh, we need to survive. <laughs> On that note, Jordan, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank, Thank you so you, much, my Pete. friend. Thank Great you. questions. Okay, so that was Jordan Peele. Now it's time for us to get into, well, us. I wrote the Empire Review of this movie. I love this film. I... I gave it four stars, and I said in the podcast the other on Friday, I'm not entirely sure why I held back from giving it the fifth, because I think it deserves it. It's a fantastic film. And Terry, you saw it twice over the weekend. <laughs> I did. Once at 11am on Saturday, while a kid's party um, happened in the cinema upstairs. Wow. Um, so it was just me and four other people in uh, the Everyman in Hampstead. Other cinema chains are available. And um, <laughs> the kids running around screaming suddenly added something, and then I watched it again on Sunday. And my brain has been scrambled and I'm, I'm, I'm basically bamboozled. Okay. In a really amazing way. I think it's a masterpiece, I have to Ooh, say. Ooh, masterpiece. I really do. And I've, I've seen some kind of third biggest, I think we saw the box office last mm-hmm. night, third yep. biggest um, debut for a horror ever. And I think there's been some unfair comparisons in places to get out. I think it phil- philosophically and just as a piece of craft, I think it's next level from get out. Interesting. Very interesting. John, where do you stand on this film? It's funny. I th- I think I had a similar sort of journey, if to use a sort of pompous word as you did, Chris. I, I think I came out of it thinking, yeah, that was really good. I think that's a four-star film. And the more I've thought about it, it's really burrowed into my brain. Mm-hmm. And like I can't, a rabbit. Like a rabbit mm. might. Yep. Uh, I, I think it's a five-star now for me. I, th- I really think yeah. I, it's, it's something that grows with you. And I think I had the same relationship with Get Out as well. I think that's something that sort of gets better as you rewatch mm. it, and it, and it deserves rewatches. Like it's built for rewatches. Yeah, I, I saw it in the the sort of big press screening at the Cineworld IMAX uh, in Leicester Square, which was a fantastic venue for it. Absolute huge screen, booming sound. The, the sound mm. in this movie is incredible, mm. um, and that was a f- great experience. But I'm really keen to see it again in a f- cinema like Peckinplex where the the crowd it's just very goes specific. Th- <laughs> it is very specific. Well, it's cuz it's near where I live and I saw Get Out there and that was Where do you the- live again, John? Your your exact address and postcode, please. <laughs> oh, great. And while you're out at your pin number and your <laughs> the code in the back of the card. I live in South London. <laughs> uh, where? <laughs> I think I saw that once on the news. <laughs> I saw Get Out at Peckinplex and, and it was just the best experience. Are you sponsored by the Peckinplex, John? I, mean, I just—it's the I just, best. Cine- it's five pounds, four ninety nine a ticket. All, 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 all films. Okay. Um, and people just go nuts if you see it at a weekend. Like yeah. everyone gets involved, especially in a film <laughs> like this. People will just. When I saw Get Out, they're like, "No, don't go through there. Don't go in there." It's, you know, it was like participation cinema. It was amazing. Is that too much? Well, they're the ushers. 
<laughs> don't, don't go in there that's my, my little pony playing in there go in there that's where get out is very helpful ushers very helpful indeed before we begin permission to retroactively add a fifth star to the <laughs> fuck it why not <laughs> rules are made to be broken especially when I disagree yeah <laughs> yeah I figured that because uh, I think this is absolutely terrific and I, wa- I rewatched it last night I-, I went with my wife Mrs Drinking Game we-, we went to the Greenwich Picture House John and decent audience decent crowd for a Sunday night mo- a movie as well which was good and uh, she loved it and I was watching it this time around with the knowledge of, A, obviously the big twist in the movie, mm. but also having spoken specifically to Jordan Peele about certain things and certain symbols and recurring motifs and themes in the movie, I was looking out for things this time around. Uh, recurrences, for example, of rabbits, mm-hmm. uh, recurrences of the number 1111, mm. which happens a lot during the movie. Obviously, it, you know, first time around I spotted a few, but this time around I spotted more. And obviously the Adelaide Red conundrum and that that old big old twist to uh, But the second time around, I thought it absolutely played, again, like gangbusters. I can see how perhaps some people have been either baffled or left slightly cold by the third act. Yes. And uh, maybe that's something we should get into right now. Terry, so you, you this movie reset your brain, scrambled it, reset it, the whole thing. Uh, was the third act a big part of that? The third act was, but re- I mean the construction of the whole thing. Cause there was a bit where I was midway through the film, and I thought, and it felt like you were in the final act. But then I, my brain worked out we were not, we were like not even halfway through the movie. So it it does a shift. You know, it it sets it up as a home invasion movie. Essentially, it really reminded me of Funny Games, uh, the American Michael Haneke, and mm-hmm. it also and the, really and the original, I guess, as well. Yes, but I'm I'm classless, so I'm specifically referring to the okay. to the American version. Okay. Um, and also, it really reminded me of The Strangers because actually that's almost identical, where they turn up outside and they've got the yes. masks on, and you kind of know that it's going to go different places because it's Jordan Peele and it's ostensibly a horror film. But the way the third act plays out, which I know has split some people, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some sequences in there. There's, I mean, there's basically Black Swan in there done in, like, much better in about three and a half minutes. I mean, it fundamentally makes you question kind of everything you think you believe, where you think the rights and wrongs sits, kind of your own moral compass as well as everybody in the film. Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting. And, and without jumping to kind of what we ultimately think it represents, I think the whole, what you come away with is a sense of... For me, it's all about fractured identity and otherness in society. And it asks some massive, 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 massive intellectual and philosophical questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's arguably one of the first truly politicised films in the Trump era. A lot of films have been kind of given that tag, but probably weren't even you know, had been developed before Trump. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as a kind of a statement on modern America, it raises some fascinating things. Mm-hmm. Trump is everywhere for me in movies. Dumbo is out this week, and it's very hard to look at Michael Keaton's character in that movie with his hair that's basically painted onto his head, and he's this vainglorious billionaire. It's hard not to see Donald Trump in that, but I'm sure that was just a happenstance. It mm. was just a coincidence, but you're absolutely right. This was conceived, written, and made in the last, well, year and a half, mm. really. So, yeah, Trump is definitely on Jordan Peele's mind with this movie. It's, it's quite deliberate, the fact that it's us. And also, you know, that could be read as US. Like, this is very much what? a sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Let me just the blow your mind. mind blower of the morning. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's obviously very much a sort of satire on America. And, 
you know what america should be that that i mean as you you mentioned in the interview that that sort of symbolic line we're americans yeah. is like mm. that feels like the most important moment of the of the whole film in some ways like this is like these are americans as a literal underclass yeah and it's it's um it's really fascinating what he's done i've read some some mad reactions on twitter people saying like uh, i think he just made a home invasion movie and then he was like uh, maybe i'll just chuck in this subtext as an afterthought and like it's not an afterthought at all it's the very it's it's the home invasion thing almost feels like a sort of vehicle to get these ideas through you know yeah I mean, I, I was completely and utterly uh, surprised by the movie because I saw the first trailer uh, when it came out a few months ago and I thought, I'm not watching anything else from this movie until I, I sit down and, and see it. So I, I, I if, I'm, if I recall correctly, the, the first trailer really focused on the home invasion stuff. Mm. Yeah. So everything else that comes afterwards where the, the scope of the movie is opened almost imperceptibly outwards uh, was new to me. And the idea that it almost becomes a zombie apocalypse movie uh, towards the end, I said to Jordan Peele, this feels almost, it feels John Carpentery mm. in a way. It feels yeah. like the fourth part of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. Little bits and pieces of Prince of Darkness seep into this film. So I was stunned by that stuff. But yeah, the the idea of the tethered uh, and that line, we're Americans, mm. which floored me. That was fascinating to me because it is a movie, again, it, you know, this is something you've heard Jordan Peele say. It's about many, many things, but it's also about privilege and it's about yeah. the apathy of privilege yeah. and about how on our daily walk to work we will walk past homeless people for example sometimes we'll pay them mm. not a second mm -hmm. thought this is also about that sort of the rise of that politically angry class of people the trump supporters the either side of the Brexit divide, the people who are angry enough about, you know, to, to go to protests and that, that that sort of attitude fomenting over the last few years and how it's very easy to ignore that and it's very easy to be complacent mm. about that until suddenly you're in the middle of an uprising and you don't know which way to turn. Because it's also about the randomness of privilege, right? Literally your position. It's not who you are, it's as much where you are. So yeah. whether you're above ground or underground, mm -hmm. that dictates so much of, of who you are and the fact that actually it was one of the tethered who was living above there the entire time and has developed a human life. So it calls into question the very nature of otherness, which is actually given the right path, the escalator going the other way instead yeah. of that one way, which is, which again is not the most subtle of metaphors, right? The, the <laughs> fact that there's only the escalator going down is pretty much the only thing keeping them from uprising. I and think, also, sorry, just to jump in there, the yeah. escalator, I did read a bit of Trump in there, perhaps. Like, as soon as I saw this sort of escalator, it's, I, I couldn't help but think Trump's like announcement speech where he like literally descends on a golden escalator at Trump Tower. Yeah. I don't know, maybe there's there's nothing there, but I thought that imagery was quite interesting. But maybe. It, but at the very least, it's how the very basics are stacked against people, right? Which right. is, you can't even, you don't even have a mode of getting yeah. up from there. And, and just the randomness of that privilege. And she had the life that actually had been intended for Red. And I'm, we're, I, it's confusing with the names, right? And I think for probably ease of understanding we'll yes. use red for all the tethers. Red will be red! Red will be red. And Adelaide will be Adelaide. Um, so I think that, that kind of perception of, of them and us, and as you say, Chris, you know, we're in really um, strange political times, but really kind of a, a political time which feels binary in many respects, but also that sense of there being a, a good gang and a bad gang has kind of disappeared, at least in this country, definitely. Should we get into the red and Adelaide thing and the, the twist of the movie? And it's also, 
I think it's really, really interesting how it plays with audiences' perception of heroism and, and villainy. First of all, did anyone see it coming? I mean, I think I did. I, I think uh, I think it was it wasn't like the 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 most surprising thing for me. And I, I I just thought there were a couple of elements that were slightly telegraphed. I think maybe that might have been deliberate on Jordan Peele's part. There's you know a few moments where um, I think. Lupita Nyong'o's speech as Adelaide is a little bit more jittery, you know. Like there's there's little little clues that perhaps she suggests that she's not who she says she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those that scene, those scenes in the prologue, sort of don't really like it's it's not left totally clear who's who. Like you know, there there is some deliberate ambiguity there at the start. Um, so it wasn't a huge surprise, but it, that didn't mean it was any less satisfying. Like it felt like a really satisfying twist and a really clever way to end the film on a sort of ambiguous note. Someone, uh, someone actually tweeted in. I can't find your name, so sorry uh, to say that they thought something was up whenever Adelaide was teaching Jason in the car the, the click his fingers to yes. I got five on it, I and that. she was slightly off the beat. Yeah, and he said, "Did you notice that?" Uh, because that, and it's like, dude. I, I've got no rhythm whatsoever. <laughs> Everything is offbeat for me. So, no, I didn't notice it. There, there are a couple of little things. You, you know, they're, they're, if you go back and look at the film again, I actually think there's a moment where it's blindingly obvious and he's almost beating you over the head with it really, really early on when you see young Adelaide, who by that point is now young Red. Her parents are at the psychotherapists yeah. and they're talking about how she had a traumatic, a traumatic experience and she's not speaking and she's playing with some animals and one of those animals is a rabbit. She places a rabbit right in the middle of this lineup of animals as well. And that's the point where I almost think he's going, this is, yeah. they've yeah. swapped. They've swapped. And really, narratively, and from a storytelling point of view, that's the only option you can go for from that very, very early confrontation. What he does, I think, which is so masterful and was so artful as well, is that he steers you away from that. He shows you very, very early on in the credit sequence, rabbits, that that lineup of rabbits. Mm-hmm. And then later on, he shows you a scene which suggests very strongly that Adelaide is actually a doppelganger. And then... He mounts the rest of the action in such a way, and that he almost makes you forget about that until the until the revelation at the end. I agree, and I I have to say that it was only during the final kind of face-off scene that I actually it, the penny fully dropped for me. There was a moment I suspect, and the moment I suspected was during one of the fight sequences uh, around the house, one of the first ones. Adelaide made a noise during. She, mm. I can't remember who she was killing, and she made a noise, and I was like, "Hang on, yeah, so that's she kills, the noise." She kills one of the teenagers. Yes, yeah. and the noise she makes is the noise. That animalistic, yeah. The animalistic noise. I was like, "Hang on," and then, as you say, I got so distracted, and it never kind of was raised again. Watching it second time round, that moment in the doctor's mm-hmm. office where she where she looks like you know she's been possessed by an evil spirit at the very least, I'm like <laughs> that probably should have been a bit of a clue, Terry. Like she's literally sat in the like evil devil eyes, massive. <laughs> you know, unless he put an arrow over her head, going not the real one, he probably couldn't have done anything. It seems obvious, but it was still. And what John's saying is really interesting because I almost like shoved it to the back of my brain and then when the reveal happened, I still went, oh, like with such kind of dramatic intent because he played it. The way I think he unfolds it is really interesting and precise. And that moment of the reveal is stunning. And I, I, like you, found it immensely, immensely satisfying. And the way as well, there's, I, I think you see little clues in the, I think... 
is it Jason the son? Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of picks up on things. So that moment mm. where she lets out that scream and he sort of gives her yes. a look as if to say who the hell are you you know there's these little sort of suspicious glances he gives her um and then that obviously reaches ahead in the car in the sort of final scene yeah but i don't know that he's necessarily i don't know if he's figured it out i I think he think he's figuring something out but i also think he's the kid in the the family who most obviously wears a mask i don't think it's a problem for him i think he just looks at his mum as someone who's wearing another mask she's still his mum it's about identity uh, ultimately and young red supplants young Adelaide's identity and then to all intents and purposes becomes Adelaide forges her own life becomes human falls in love becomes the person we're rooting for and Red goes the other way it's almost like trading places in a weird way so you know Red becomes Dan Aykroyd who's at his lowest ebb in the Santa costume wearing with a smoked salmon in his, in his beard and Adelaide is Eddie Murphy who's living the, the life of Riley uh, so this is a weirdly twisted remake of trading places I've just realised but I'm sold um, on it. but you know I read the Jason thing slightly differently so I, I his face in the scene in the ambulance at the end yeah. where he looks at her and he knows he knows for sure, right? And she, and she does that kind of terrifying half smile. And maybe I've been thinking about this too much this weekend, but I was thinking it's really about generational sin and, you know, and about how they're kind of being absolved of the sins of the forefathers and how those are passed on through the generations. And actually, she's, gonna, she's now really fucked up her kid and she's kind of planted the sin in the next generation. It will continue going on. American history is built on generations of sin and misdeeds, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how I read the Jason thing. And I thought he seemed scared at the end and a little bit like the dam- the, his new path was starting, his new path that was being shaped out of the sins of his mum. Because as you say, it is his mum at that point. She gave birth to him. Mm. And she married his dad, and all of all of that is her real life, even if she swapped identities at the beginning. Some people have talked about plot holes and logical fallacies in this movie, and I I don't see any issue with any of them really. I I kind of like that there's a lot that's unexplained, and but but the thing that I can't quite get my head around is that Adelaide is the tethered, right? So we are to yeah. believe that she has no soul. Well, is that she what? is. It's it's all one soul. It's that's, one that's, soul. They it's share shared a, soul. It's shared yeah. soul. They, there's a line where they say they could duplicate the bodies, but they could only have one soul, okay. and that's the thing: is their soul is split across two bodies, one above ground, right, one below okay. ground. Yeah. I was just trying to because it's such a strange thought to think what kind of life she had to forge to sort of go from being this sort of slightly twisted weird under underground monster person into becoming like a fully functioning member of society but isn't that the point though that they actually could be seen as victims they part of a government experiment mm. to try and control the people above ground they're abandoned at some point in such a horrible way that they have to eat and kill those rabbits and eat the rabbits that's pretty much at, at one point is hinted at that that's their only food down yeah. there they're left to rot down there and Instead of, you know, God knows what, doing something else with them, they're just left to exist and, and presumably die down there. And so actually, when you see this film for the second time through that prism and you see them as victims of society and this need to kind of control people and, and this split between um, opportunity and no opportunity and affluence. And when you start to see it in those terms, I didn't see them as kind of bad people being kept underground, mm-hmm. but victims of, of essentially societal and government control. Mm-hmm. A few people have said things like, you know, why couldn't they just go up to the surface? The and escalator. Just, the escalator and just, well, no, but when they emerge on the surface, they emerge obviously with, with vengeance and 
and mm. uh, take over on their mind. Um, why can't they just? Why can't we all just get along? Because they've, I think, over the the years, they've grown to hate, especially I think fostered by Adelaide's very real rage yes. uh, being supplanted in her life by this little girl. That they have a very very real hatred towards their other halves as well. Um, I mean, when you look at what they're doing down there, the actions they're performing, there's that, um, there's those, that scene where it cuts to what's happening upstairs and what's happening downstairs mm. and their, their version is punching walls and, you know, everything's mm. a bit off and a bit twisted and the, the kind of darkness that's attached to that, they've clearly been living a some kind of hell for decades and decades and decades. And actually, so of course, after when they find the chosen one or whatever they perceive her to be, and obviously there's a lot of religious symbolism mm-hmm. in this film as well, they are doing it with vengeance and with righteous anger and I think if I'd been buried below ground like living a shitter version of somebody else's life I'd be probably a bit pissed off and all Absolutely. <laughs> it's why Adelaide is so important young Adelaide coming amongst them because she's not of the tethered so therefore she knows A that there's a way out and there's a line that Red slash Adelaide has towards that's called Red uh, towards the end it has we were born special so mm. there's even there's even an indication that Red herself as a young a young tethered is somehow different from the other tethered because she finds a way out mm-hmm. whereas yes. the other tethered seem mindless in a way they're 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 copies but she has free thought in in a way that the others mm. don't so she can she can find a way can out speak as well right well, she learns that eventually. Yeah. yeah, she you know it's, she learns it from her environment around her. But at the, at the beginning of the movie, she can't speak. Mm. Last night, we watched it again. I was like, "Well, how come Adelaide just doesn't wake up and go? Well, hang on, I'm I'm not one of you." But then they, 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 there's that little throwaway thing where she wakes up and she's been strangled and her voice yeah. box maybe mm. slightly damaged. I mean, that, that's just go with that. That's yeah. just that's just go with it. There are other things about the origin of the tethered. Jordan Peele didn't really want to get into everything. He wants again to leave it up to the the viewer's imaginations, uh, or he hasn't figured it out. <laughs> Either way works, it's totally fine. But one of them is the origin. There's that line about, you know, almost they were, they were man-made in mm. some way, that uh, it was some sort of government experiment to see whether you could clone people, yes, but also whether you could clone the soul. And so I'm wondering if there was some sort of... Because it raises a lot of questions. The end of the film, the very final shot of the film, with that huge hands across America, the, the almost bastardization of hands across America in a weird way that massive political statement that they're making here we are we are the tethered you can't ignore us now you bastards that last shot lays bare the scale of this thing and you're wondering how big is this Mm. so is this a global crisis are there tethered does everybody have a tethered does everybody have a twin or is it just a government experiment in America localized to Santa Cruz or roughly around that area and it's just a few thousand. I thought it was Amer- I thought it was national, but American, and that's because when I considered it being global, a there's the line we're Americans, although arguably there could that could be happening in another country, and they could be saying we are French in a French accent. Um, or, but then I actually I thought I think it is national and actually the opening words are really the thing that confirmed that for me so obviously the text on the beginning of the screen before the mm. um, either was it after the credits or before the credits anyway it says that there is a a um, network of underground tunnels etc etc and it makes it clear that he's speaking about the US mm-hmm. when he's talking about yes. those tunnels yeah. mm-hmm. so that for me made it feel like it's definitely bigger than just Santa Cruz mm-hmm. but and it's an American problem and it, and it works as an allegory for America I think you can put a kind of global view on it as well but that's kind of where I ended upon that last shot that it was nationwide across the states 
My reading of that is that there was an experiment to try and somehow find the soul and clone the soul, and it quite it went awry a little bit, and maybe the souls began to manifest themselves physically in an attempt to somehow puppeteer the people above the above the surface. And again, you know, that's, that's something that we're reading an awful lot about these days as well, the idea of government control mm. and, you know, subliminal messaging. And there's a line from Sora early in the movie mm. about oh, yeah. throw, it, throw it in the water and she says, nobody cares about the end of the world. By the end of the movie, they kind of do. Mm. And I, I, again, that indicates where he's going with it. It's very clever. There are lots of little subtle foreshadowings and, and, and you know, setups for payoffs that come later. So my feeling is that the souls physically manifested in an attempt to puppeteer the people uh, on the surface, but it didn't work. And in actual fact, it's the people on the surface who puppeteer the people below, mm. which is why which is why they are in such abject misery. Because, mm. for example, Adelaide's dad, his doppelganger doesn't want to be punching walls. And the people who are on the roller coaster, they're interesting. They don't want to be cuddled in a doorway pretending that they're on a roller coaster. They're the other way around. Which is, again, why Adelaide is different, because Adelaide, in a way, red, Adelaide, young Adelaide, can, in a way, puppeteer to an extent above ground. Well, that's Adelaide. the key scene, isn't it? The, when they're doing the dance, dance recital, yes. it's indicated that it's red who's actually yes. leading that dance. Yes. And therefore, that's the time that everybody underground goes, hang on. I don't quite know. That's the bit I was the leap with. How do they know that she's the one controlling it. I don't know if it's the dance was so beautiful that she clearly wasn't being dragged around because mm-hmm. the way they did the movements of the tethered normally and I, and the stuff you just described, I found really traumatising. That shot of people stood in a in a doorway mm. being thrown around as if they were on a roller coaster and they look terrified mm. and, and just full of horror. And actually when you see Red dance and Adelaide above ground, Red is beautiful. It's very, it is very Black Swan-esque. Mm. And, then, and that's the moment they go, oh my God, we may be able to have control or at least this one person amongst us can control what goes on above ground as well and that's the moment they decide she's the messiah or the one or whatever they ultimately because there's that scene Mm. where they literally go Mm. and stand around her and it looks very much like a laying hands on church thing i don't know what the correct word is for they anoint her as as her leader it's almost a a, a baptism in a a way and jordan peele even uses the word messiah uh, to describe Uh, Adelaide slash Red. And there is uh, some the, uh, sort of biblical dialogue as well, isn't there? Like she talks about being sent from God or something like that. Yeah, there? she talks about having seen God and in, in, yeah. in that dance, that was the moment that she saw God. Right. I want to ask about the knowledge of Adelaide and Red because I've seen a few people, we had a few questions from people uh, going, does Adelaide know that she was once a tethered and does Red know that she was once a surface dweller, a human, so to speak. What do you think? Well, so I I don't think... I read something saying that essentially Adelaide starts to um, remember more and she's not aware for most of the film. I don't read it like that at all. I read it that she was basically worried about being discovered. So I (laughs) felt like she had consciousness of what she'd done. Uh as a child throughout the entire film. So when she's jittering and, and worried and closing the curtains and doesn't want to go back to the beach, that for me is about her protecting this life. She doesn't want to go back and be a tethered. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know lots of other people said they felt like she was remembering more and there's a moment of realisation for her. I thought both of them knew exactly what had happened um, and that's kind of what drove both their motivations narratively throughout the whole film. Hmm. It just means that no one lays it out explicitly. So yes. that, that first time when they meet in that great scene in the, in the house 
where all four of them are lined up opposite each other. And it's, God, the writing's so they're, they're so good. Talking about setting up things and, and then paying them off later on. So, you know, Umbre is introduced. Uh, Red says that she, she was brought into this world laughing. She goes out laughing. Mm. Uh, Pluto, uh, which I think didn't get a chance to talk about this with Jordan Peele, but Pluto, I think, is a nod to the Hills of Eyes in which another uh, uh, another normal American mm. family meets a unnormal American family and shit happens uh, and there's a major character in that called Pluto as well and Pluto you know she talks about how he was born out of fire and he that's how he dies he dies mm. in the fire as well so mm. you know it's just a wonderful intricate clockwork script it, it, it's absolutely beautiful but yeah I, th- I think it's uh, they never really explicitly have that conversation mm. amongst themselves even at the end when Red is laying out the exposition that you would think Adelaide would already know. She becomes Red exposition for a little bit. That's interesting that they never really explicitly come out. She never says, you took my life, you Mm. stole what was mine. Yeah, I wonder if that is more sort of uh, careful filmmaking that it's not revealing too much to the audience and saving the twist for the end rather than any specific like characters stuff where she's, she's, she's there. If they were having that sort of you know explicit confrontation mm. i i do i think i haven't seen this twice but i think watching uh lupita nyong'o's performance again oh she's so good um, oh my god <laughs> I, I i think there's there's there is some guilt there probably i think there is some sort of like oh yeah some long-held guilt that she's like had to deal with her whole life um and then it's her, this is her chickens coming mm. home to roost sort yeah. of thing it's what terry said about the sins of the past right. she, she's aware right. of what she's done and then suddenly it is there, manifested yeah. in front of her. Very vengeful, yeah. terrifying, red overalls, looking like some sort of demented quick fit fitter. <laughs> with those scissors. And then suddenly, yeah, you're right, the chickens have come home to roost. Yeah. Like, yeah, even the way she shuts, tries to shut Gabe up and he's like trying to be quite friendly or yeah. trying to yeah. be, you know, placate them. She's going, Gabe. Because she knows she's from the tethered she knows what they can do and she knows what they're capable of and she knows that for the most part they're mindless husks except for the person sitting in front of her why is she not a mindless husk because I stole her life she Mm. used to be me I used to be her a lot of people have uh, been talking about the logistical difficulty of planning a nationwide uprising where did they get the overalls from where do they get the scissors from? Someone wrote in saying that you can't subsist on a rabbit-only diet, especially when it's just raw and bloody. You've got no cooking uh, utensils or, or kitchens or anything like that. But at that point, that's where the supernatural kicks in. Yeah. This is a supernatural uh, manifestation. And so I think we're allowed a few liberties with that. Also, Amazon Prime will deliver anywhere. And, and we only see one part of downstairs. Let's not forget, yeah. right? We don't yeah. know if they have a... F- They've been at this the Scissor floor. room. Yeah. <laughs> they might have a scissor room. They might have a red overall room. They've been at this for decades, yeah. right? So yeah, if yeah. you think about her dance recital, she must have been a teenager. When she's above ground, the kind of it's what 30 however many years later right so they've been at this for probably two decades roughly yeah 32 Um, years later and during that time that's probably how long it would take to plan and execute a a national uprising on Mm -hmm. that scale and i just want to mention the scene you were just talking about about jordan peele planting those amazing little um echoes that come back later in the Mm. film also the levity in that scene is beautiful a lot of that comes through gabe but you know the bit where he's like broke but trying to barter with them clearly not understanding what's Mm. happening and um and you 
because he like offers them the boat and Zora goes dad nobody wants the boat and I just thought <laughs> I just thought the confidence of Jordan Peele to write those scenes which are full of tension mm, and yeah. full of jeopardy and high stakes and it's just some beautifully timed I mean yeah. the, the cinema I was in there was five of us and all of those little lines <laughs> got a big laugh and it, and it really and often you know it's so hard to do without completely undercutting the tension but I just thought it was beautiful because you have to be invested in each member of that family yeah. to keep go to keep going through another you know mm. leg and a half of the film mm. and actually he spends so long at the beginning setting up these characters who you oh, yeah. feel so warm about the family dynamic is captured so brilliantly the little asides you know there's no kind of it's not just um exposition after kind of laden dialogue after there's just yeah. the normal back and forwards of a family and have, i just think the time spent doing that is so important to this film i love that moment where they compare kill counts yeah oh, oh my yeah. god and who's gonna drive that yeah, whole yeah, yeah, thing yeah. about yeah. who's gonna drive and the home alone reference yeah, yeah, yeah oh yeah. my god we're not gonna sprinkle mic machines in the floor like what's a micro machine um, what's, what's home, home alone, alone? <laughs> yeah it's a ter- that's the most terrifying line in the film yeah. Who doesn't know what Home Alone is? <laughs> it's a terrible Christmas movie. That's what it is. It's a fun... Oh, Chris, we, we've got a serious discussion to be had after this. You prefer Home um, Alone 2, don't you? Home Alone 2 is superior, yeah. But Which has both, Donald Trump in it. What? Yes. So it all they're both fantastic. In, they're both masterpieces it? of American cinema. And, and you know, like, dropping in Fuck the Police by NWA. <laughs> that, I mean, just the, ti- the timing in this film yeah. is, is beautiful and perfection. Uh, possibly best use of Beach Boys as well. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> good vibrations in that in that moment is 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 great. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Adelaide and Red um, because there's an awful lot of uh, there's that shot we were talking about about how he basically has a finger and arrow pointing at young Adelaide, going, "This is actually Red. This is actually Red." But there's lots of his images and his use of imagery is fantastic. There's an awful lot of uh, scenes shot through in mirrors and reflections mm. of Adelaide. Which clearly indications that there's something up here. You know, obviously, you know, highlighting the 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 nature of the duality of that character, but also I think saying there's something up with this character. This mm-hmm. is not necessarily who you think she is. The opening shot of the movie is Adelaide's reflection, uh, in captured in that TV set. So it's right, it's right there, right from the off. Mm. This this character, you you think you're with this character, but really we're going to be focusing on the shadow world variation of this character which I think is, is pretty cool that opening scene also that push in on the TV set has the TV show is 11 at 11 so there's 11 11 right from the off and if you look at the videotapes around the the TV as well you have the right stuff so another cameo with the right stuff this year well done the right stuff is doing well mm-hmm. making a bit of a, a bit of a comeback but also two of the films on there are Chud mm-hmm and the Goonies, both of which are um, about subterranean dwellers mm. in, in a way. Yeah. But also, his first—I read that his first girlfriend's um, dad directed Chud, and so that really? was yeah. So that was like a bit of a personal <laughs> nod from him. I don't wow. quite know what that means, but um. that's kind of amazing. <laughs> and it references all the way through to, to other horror films. I mentioned The Hills of Eyes. I mentioned yep. Prince of Darkness. Uh, there's nods to Hitchcock in there. There's obviously nods to The Lost Boys. You have to imagine that that's the film that is filming at Santa Cruz yeah. Boardwalk. You know, they'd mentioned earlier, go and be an extra in that film they're shooting over there. That must be The Lost Boys. Mm. He's such a horror aficionado that it's all packed in there. And you know, It could take weeks to unpack all the different references and, and whatnot in this movie. I yeah. felt some Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, the, the people in tunnels and yep. basements. And, you know, the, he was obviously 
set on well, he was you know a bad guy but he was set on fire by a vengeful mob um, there's so many mm. amazing and a lot of them quite delicate actually from kind of 80s classics to loads of horror as you say Hitch, that Hitchcocky intention is kind of there all the way through Romero you can feel um, mm. it's um, and it's there is a little the second time I was a little bit like spot the Easter egg and spot the reference yeah. I mean, he's very cine-literate, cine isn't he? There's, I, I thought there was a little bit of The Shining in um, the sort of steady cam shot in the opening prologue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of tracking a, a small child, that felt very shining. The twins. The twins, yeah. Um, I mean, visually as well. We, he's, oh, it's, he's, he looks beautiful. It's stunning. I mean, he's a very precise filmmaker narratively, but also visually. I think there's some really like clear-minded and sort of very careful placements of the camera and we've got to really give a shout out to uh, Mike Giolakis the cinematographer who just did such an amazing job mm. in lighting this film and, and giving it this really sort of distinct visual sheen the stuff at night when the home invasion happens looks incredible the shadows and and the, and the lights from behind the, the way he shoots the the, the hall of mirrors in the, in the prologue i think is in, incredible and uh, mike gilakis also did under the silver lake this year mm. which and you know for, for people are mixed on that film i think it's but it but it has a similar sort of satire on america it shows america in a sort of real but hyper real way in a really clever way i think he's you know a really talented cinematographer mm. um i also think uh you know i mean this film's meticulously designed isn't it but mm. i also think that the uh the, the score is fantastic the michael oh my god Abel's score uh he is pretty much brand new in the scene as far as i can tell he did get out uh, as well as this movie and it's just it's encouraging because it means that there's some great new voices out there yeah. in the in the world of film scoring and i love the sort of cod omni almost Ave Zantani kind yeah, yeah, of the, yeah. Choir, yeah. the choir at the beginning of the movie uh, which I think is almost there as a red herring in a weird way you know push you into thinking that this is about you evil know, rabbits or it's about evil it's about evil rabbits but ultimately it makes you think it's about angels and demons and, and good versus evil right. in a very biblical sense right, and there's a biblical right. overtones to this movie obviously but ultimately it's about internal evil and internal good and you know that battle rages within us all mm. and, the, and the sort of classical uh, remix of oh my God. Five on it is just genius. So one of the interesting things about this movie is that Peel himself has said that it's not about race in the overt way that Get Out was and it's, it's really refreshing even though he said it's not overtly about race it's really refreshing and he deliberately positioned a black family of middle class affluent African Americans uh, in there but at the same time they also want what Josh and Kitty have this kind mm. of horrible, nasty, phenal family, but they have a better house, a better car, a better boat, which is called Biotch, mm -hmm. by the way, if you didn't, if you didn't, <laughs> didn't pick that up. That. <laughs> and so it is still about, even though you get to this level, this, this sort of strata of society, there's still another strata to go. There's still, there's still many more strata to go, I think, for, for, for people. I thought that was revolutionary, actually, what he did, because as soon as you see that the film is based around an African-American family, I think everybody assumes it's about race. And actually, that's because the default setting in, a, in kind of a everyman story is that that is a white family going off on vacation. As you say, they're middle class, they're clearly happy. And I thought to make it not about race and to make it a kind of broader statement on society, for me, it's exactly what you're saying, Chris, which is it's the toxicity of the American dream, really. Mm. The American dream 
been um, we've been sold for decades, which tells you, you know, it's it's not about where you're from. It's about uh, what you can become and what you can achieve and what you can own ultimately. And what the film exposes is that privilege and um, coincidence and luck and getting a leg up and all of these things actually are massively what ultimately kind of feeds into whether you're a success or not. And I think all of those observational films with the other family, I just thought those those bits were really, really amazing because it really revealed that it's about the American dream and about mm-hmm. capitalism as much as it is about about race or isolation within society or anything like that. And we just have to say, I have to say, Elizabeth Moss in this film mm. is... She plays um, she plays privileged white bitch very well, um, <laughs> enjoying her third glass of rosé on the beach. Her other, her shadow self is phenomenal like there's a moment there's one shot where she tries to scream i think Mm. that's what she was trying to do anyway and she kind and she can't and no sound comes out and she kind of morphs into this screaming laughing psychopath i mean it's just remarkable from her i think yeah tremendous but i also love tim heidegger as yeah in this movie as as josh but mainly his doppelganger who is some sort of horrendous demonic dude bro, douchebag. <laughs> Hopefully, that robe. When, when he reaches out to the dying kitty and then does <laughs> the fake right. out hand through the hair thing. Like you can only imagine he's learned from the real Josh, who's an yeah. absolute twat. Uh, and then later on when he's pursuing Gabe down the, uh, down the jetty mm. and he's all like, ooh, doing the, uh, yeah, this yeah. is a podcast, you can't see what I'm doing, but you remember the move, you see what he does. And he's doing these kind of weird douchebaggy hand movements and gestures yeah. and that clearly he's learned from Heidecker's uh, Josh. Really, really great piece of, uh, of acting. Well, because it's yeah. still him, as you said earlier, right? It's it's they're both parts of essentially yeah. the same soul and the same person. Yeah, like they're and it's that thing of you can't really escape yourself, the worst bits of yourself, and the kind of other bits of yourself. And that that kind of setup shows it more than anything when you're like, oh no, that's him. That's really him. It's just the like really dickish part of him, mm. and that's what we've all got inside all of us. Yeah, right? I, I I really thought. All of the performances, like across the board, were just amazing because it takes mm. such amount of skill to have that distinction, and there's a real clear delineation between the two, the the the, the humans and the untethered. I thought Winston Duke was fantastic, you know, mm. the way mm. that he plays this sort of big lumbering, embarrassing dad, um, <laughs> and then he, but he sort of uses his physicality for like comedy, but also for like power and just yeah. like, to create this sort of horror with his tethered. He has this sort of really like sort of dead-eyed look, which is in, in, well, in a different way becomes really frightening. I interviewed him for the uh, the regular podcast, so go and check that out, interview out if you haven't already. And he's a fascinating guy. You know, <laughs> it's really, really, really thoughtful actor. Mm. It's a great performance. He didn't just do the Jean-Claude Van Damme slick your hair back <laughs> thing, which he could have done easily and maybe got away with it. But, you know, he has a he's more about the inner life of these characters. Yeah. But I didn't ask him this question, and I kind of wanted to, but I felt by the end, as he was getting really thoughtful about his character, I thought it would be really facetious but Abraham seems so much bigger than Gabe and I wanted to know how he did that like how because it's obviously body language and posture and the way he sets himself up but he seems hulking in a way that Gabe doesn't with his close to middle-aged American dad who's maybe mm. had a bit of an easier life than most and so he's relaxed into this kind of looseness his posture's not what it used to be yeah. uh, I just thought was really really interesting uh, physical delineation and uh, you know Christ the the Adelaide and Red performances, my, yeah. my God. But also um, the smile, Umbre's smile. Shahadi Wright-Joseph, who plays both Sora and Umbre, her, her evil smile is mm. terrifying, terrifying. 
I want to give a shout out to an article in The Hollywood Reporter by Richard Newby, who's an African-American film writer, and he has a really interesting take in it. Um, he talks about, there's a, there's a whole whole section of the article which is about white affluence and the idea of double consciousness and he quotes uh, the the writer W.E.B. Dubois' collection of essays The Souls of Black Folks from 1903 and uh, so there is something in there as well Mm. it is not overtly about race in the way that Get Out was but there is certainly something there so uh, check that out. It's on the HollywoodReporter.com if you want to check out that article. Very good stuff indeed. And just on that, it, I, I did think it was interesting that Adelaide spends most of the movie in chains. I mean, that can't have been an accidental use of imagery, like mm. that, given the sort of violent history of America, that that's, mm. you know, that, that they had to have a black person in chains is, you know, that's really significant. Um, and I think that's, some, that's something that perhaps Jordan Peele was thinking about when writing the film. Okay, we're going to take some questions now from listeners and uh, you've sent into my DMs. Thank you for that and thank you for once again uh, not sending me any dick pics. First question that I've seen comes from at Life in Fantasia, Anahit Behrouz, who asks, uh, Although I loved a lot of the movie, its critique about privilege and the marginalisation of large groups of the population seemed to me to be undermined by how the tethered were depicted as monsters. It felt almost like a demonization of the oppressed. I understand Peel's point was that they were made to be that way, and obviously Adelaide and Red switch places. So there is some nuance, but nevertheless, the tethered spent pretty much all the film being the violent antagonists of a horror film. We'd be interested to hear if that struck any of you. I mean, we talked about this a little bit. Mm. I think, as you say, they are living within a world that they have been forced to exist in and it becomes about survival, ultimately. I didn't necessarily see them as as violent aggressors as much as people trying to reclaim or claim a life that is fit for a human being. And I thought the contrast, you needed that contrast to be stark to understand the difference between the tethered and um, the humans um, quote unquote above the surface um, and I think that otherness that Peel kind of sketches out is really kind of indicative of what's going on in the world at the moment which is you have entire underclasses of people both in this country and in America and probably lots of other countries who are fighting for survival look at the poverty rates in this country I think it's a really real depiction of the kind of starkness of mm, some of the uh-huh. of the realities we find ourselves in and actually I think it makes you question as an audience member if you presume them to be kind of base or primal or or violent I think a lot of that if you watch the film again is based on your own kind of assumptions because it's a horror um, film and you expect yeah. the, the other to be yeah. terrifying and, and they can't speak and the fact that they can't speak English that she's the only one that can and that they make mm. animalistic noises mm. those kind of things are kind of our assumptions about what a human being is and how a human being functions so I think it makes you ask difficult questions of yourself probably yeah it's 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 it is playing on audience expectations and it and I I would say that by the end of the film by the, the the sort of twist in the third act i think they sort of cease to be antagonists i don't i think that's mm. the, the point is that they they start as antagonists yeah and then it it becomes far more muddied by the end of it i i can see what you're saying but but i think that's what genre and allegory is used for you know they, they have to be a bit scary because that's the sort of format that we're in but uh but ultimately i don't think he's saying that all poor people are violent you know <laughs> But it is interesting that they they make such a bold statement that will will, will reverberate around the globe. And we, again, we don't know the scale of this thing, but that's that's assumed that it's just localized to America. It's still a hell of a bold statement. But the statement starts out as a violent one, and then becomes one that is essentially peaceful. Mm. I don't know what will happen eventually when they start when they break the the hands across America. 
thing. Uh, will they? Will you know? Will they try and wipe out whatever humans are yeah. left? Will there be a war? Will they? You know? Will humans declare war on the on the tethered? Yeah, and it's very open ended, right? Like at the end, I was like, "But what is what is the point of them all doing the hands across America? What what are they getting at with this human chain?" And isn't the point that you know there's now an Ozverse, um, which isn't a word, where presumably Jordan Peele's going to explore this in an in another film? But I, as John says, I think the wa- waters are so muddied by the end that there's no goodbye, good guy, bad guy, um, or goodbye, bad guy. Well, yeah, because <laughs> well, absolutely. There is I mean, no good guy, bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gabe, I'd say was pretty good, but uh, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, you've, you've got Adelaide, the person we were rooting for at the beginning of the movie, is revealed to be the whole reason for this thing kicking off in the first place. And at the end of the movie, you're are you you're clearly? I, well, I think you're meant to feel a lot of sympathy for for Red, mm-hmm. who meets that 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 fate down there, ignominious fate down in the uh, in the bunker. But even Jason, when Jason, what's Jason's shadow called again? Pluto. And when he gets, um, when he walks backwards into the fire and you sense that Adelaide feels real grief in that moment. And I think you as the audience do as well. At David O'Storm asked, the compassion Adelaide had for Red's children, did she recognise them as her tethered children? Well, I think she's, you know, that maternal sense, and it's the scene I just talked about where mm. he walks backwards into the fire and you see the grief on her face. And I think that's the point is is both of them are capable of maternal feelings. Both her and the shadow are both com- capable of compassion, of love, and it isn't just a simple thing that she's the bad one, therefore can't feel any empathy, or she's the good one and they're the bad kids. I think that kind of muddling of morality, and it comes back to basically all the human stuff we share, which is empathy, compassion, grief. Those things seem to be universal with the tethered and the non-tethered. Indeed, really. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the level we're getting to at this point, guys, because we're we're about to be being kicked out. Uh, I'm just saying, indeedly, beadly to things. <laughs> um, I'm looking through the questions, and I think we pretty much answered just in our natural discussion. We've pretty much answered everyone's questions anyway, so that's good. There is one I wanted to get to very very quickly from Christelle B from Brewery underscore Chris, who asks, "Was it the case that the tethered could only kill their above ground doppelgangers?" And I'm saying no to this but if you look for example when they attack Kitty and Josh and their two daughters Mm. uh, each counterpart kills the other so to speak but there's that guy who shouts at Umbre for standing on his car she kills him and it's fairly clear that when the bit where they're trying to rescue Adelaide from Kitty's doppelganger that the two twins are out to kill Jason and Sora for yes, me anyway. Because you do wonder why Kitty kind of threatens Adelaide with a knife but yeah. doesn't kill her at that point. Yeah. But then, yeah, the twins go hell for leather for everybody, so it seems all bets are off at that point. Yeah. My feeling ultimately is that everybody is fair game with the exception of Adelaide, who is red and red's oh. alone. Oh, yeah. So do not kill her. And, you know, she looks like our leader. So don't yes. kill the one who looks like our leader, basically. On that note, that is a good note on which to end this Us Sporter Special. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed the Jordan Peele interview as well. Our next Sporter Special, um, perhaps less to get our teeth into, but fun nonetheless, it is going to be Shazam. Shazam! With the director David F. Sandberg and producer Peter Safran. So that's going to be a lot of fun as well. That'll be out sometime in the next two weeks. Uh, Until then, we are out every Friday as well with the regular Empire podcast. If you don't already listen to it and you don't already subscribe, we would love it if you did. But until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Terry White. Goodbye. It is goodbye.
from John Nugent. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off down Santa Cruz Boardwalk to play Whack-A-Mole. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.